politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen standing at the ready to guard our freedoms. This is Daniel Horowitz, your host back in the house for another brand new week of broadcast Monday, June 14th, and it is Flag Day. Here we are as the famous Lee Greenwood song always said, because the flag stands for freedom and they can't take that away. Well, maybe they can't take away the actual flag, but they certainly took away our freedoms this year. What does the flag mean to you one year later, more than a year later, into COVID fascism? Does it still mean anything? Do our freedoms mean anything? Are they still worth fighting for? Because by golly, let me tell you, you will have to fight for them. This fight is not over. I was thinking in the middle of the night, it was kind of a tough night, one of those nights where the baby woke up God knows how many times, I really feel bad for my wife, and I happened to just glance at my phone, I got a text from someone who sent me this new academic paper that came out from these Australian researchers, and their main point they were, they were making is that we basically knew all along, based on historical patterns, the way this virus was going to turn out. There was nothing novel, even if it was created synthetically through a lab, but the way it transmits is going to be the same. They have some interesting insights I want to read to you. And I was thinking to myself, you know, when you, you, when you look at 37.5% of small businesses destroyed, when you look at, what is it? They say 50.6% increase in adolescent girl suicide um, ED visits, ED visits for suicides by March 2021. Did it have to be this way? Could we have done more to prevent COVID fascism? To educate people, to fight harder? I mean, as one person, I tried to do everything I could. But at the very least, we need to make sure that this could never happen again because it absolutely will and it and even the original fascism is not over to varying degrees depending on, on where you are so i want to explore some of the latest information we have on the virus what we could have done about it what what we really need to be doing going forward and hopefully we'll get to some other stories as well today um, I do have some more crime stories, constitutional sanctuary stories, what I want to do with our red state and red county movement. Again, if you have not signed up for one of our teams to meet a fellow patriot in the audience, go to constitutionaction.com. Constitutionaction.com. Give us your zip code and we'll pair you with a team in your area. But we do need team leaders in some states. We're setting up Alabama and West Virginia now. Um, so I'm really going to focus on those two red states where the elected Republicans are terrible, just awful. So there's a lot of work to be done there. And and by the way, it just reminds me of one of our sponsors today, our sponsor really partner this, this year, constitutioncoach.com. It might be very hot out in the Nevada desert, but come the fall, it will be terrific weather to go out there on vacation. 
Meet all sorts of patriots from this audience, including yours truly, at least on the October 31st trip. Strategize together, learn the Constitution together, and go through two or four day handgun, defensive handgun courses together. It really is the best constitutional defense course in America. Um, this is out in Pahrump, Nevada. Front sites, 50,000 um, people. Every year they train 50,000 people on their 550-acre complex. Um, I'm hoping the October 31st event, we could really get a lot of our state team leaders out there. And we could come into next year's legislative session with an agenda like no other and a strategy for implementing it and a strategy for primaries and gubernatorial elections like none other. That will be a very critical planning phase in the fall to really plan for next year's primaries, which are either in the spring or the summer. But remember, whether it's the county legislative season, even the state legislative season, the issue advocacy is all year round. And I feel like if we would have made our voices heard earlier on, we could have prevented COVID fascism, at least in some parts of this country. So again, if you want 80, uh, 90% off front sites training, you got to do it through constitutioncoach.com um, to sign up for that defensive handgun training, which by the way, you absolutely need in this day and age, because if you are carrying, you really do know how to, you have to know how to defend yourself in a defensive situation unfortunately becoming increasingly likely. So anyway, what I was saying last night, I, I saw in the middle of the night it, this uh, link someone sent me, and it's written by two Australian researchers. Just It's kind of a paper. It's in Springer.com. And they just say very simply, although every emerging infectious disease occurs in a unique context, the behavior behavior of previous pandemics offers an insight into the medium and long-term outcomes of the current threat. Where an informative historical analog exists, epidemiologists and policymakers should consider how the insights of the past can inform current forecasts and responses. And their whole point is, rather than some hypothetical mathematical models, which is really what has driven this entire thing, you look at history. And obviously, if you understand history, there has never been a time when non-pharmaceutical interventions could have prevented something. It all is going to play out in the same way. And one of the points they make is that we actually compared this a lot to the 1957 uh, Asian flu. They compare it to the 1889 pandemic, which actually created the emergence of OC43, which is one of the four coronavirus colds. And they note that it was very it's very similar. Low morbidity among young people and especially children, the lack of the shift in excess mortality to younger age groups usually seen with pandemic influenza, um, the magnitude and distribution of peak excess mortality ratios in metropolitan settings, and the rapidity of epidemic propagation within communities. Very, it was very similar to 130 years ago. And their point is that analogies to past pandemics can also provide an important check on the assumptions made during model construction. 
As an example, every established respiratory pandemic of the last 130 years has caused seasonal waves of infections and has culminated in viral endemicity. Endemicity. That's a tough word there. In other words, it becomes endemic. Very interesting thing. This notion that you're going to fully eradicate something. First of all, the notion that you're going to slow it at all, that the geographical variances have to do with political propagation and not seasonal natural patterns, and then also the notion that you're going to get rid of it. it they tend to become endemic, and that's important because the pandemic is over. It's 100% over. What you have now is a new thing that will likely be milder over time that becomes endemic. Remember, HCoV-43 that nobody has ever heard of, it's one of the four coronavirus colds, which, by the way, right now is in greater circulation than COVID. COVID is number six right now in terms of prevalence of circulation of respiratory viruses. Parainfluenza, rhinovirus, OC43, several others are ahead of it, maybe even two of the coronavirus colds. That is, that is their lesson. They go through the past, and that could have informed us. Despite this robust observation, initial models of COVID-19 structurally excluded this possibility through the failure to incorporate seasonal transmission effects or either pre-existing or partial post-infection immunity to infection. Although SARS-CoV-2 is a novel non-influenza pathogen, the strong seasonal behavior of closely related endemic coronaviruses seems a more reliable starting point than the assumption of an unprecedented weather agnostic respiratory pathogen causing permanent sterilizing natural immunity. And this is unbelievable. Unbelievable. Rather than relying only on mathematical models of the future, researchers and policymakers should consider how knowledge of the past might assist in understanding the likely consequences of COVID-19. And we find from the Fauci emails, we find from the original statements, they knew this. They knew exactly how this behaved. But at the same time, they also knew that this was the first pandemic we had during the era of social media. And they knew that they could spread fear and panic and control and deception much quicker than even the viral spread. And they also knew that there really is no seasonal gaps or natural immunity to government-induced synthetic fear. And it worked. And that's really what killed us. They did this on purpose. They knew all along. Like, everyone thinks, oh, oh uh, hide, hide, wear a mask. Like, what are you talking about? When a new thing is introduced, it spreads for about a year, give or take. And it's going to do its thing. All you could do is understand who it targets, which we knew from day one. So you try to focus herd immunity on those that could do it on the cheap. Then you understand how to treat it. And that's the bigger thing. You treat it with Things that work. Vitamin D, vitamin C, zinc. And then we've come up with all bunch of cocktails. And I want to get to that as our next portion. We didn't understand history. But also, 
we failed to do the one thing that I think could have preempted this, and that is to neutralize the pandemic of fear by making people no longer fear the virus. Because if you know that you have something that at the first sign of trouble you could take and you won't be hospitalized, guess what? You're no longer going to fear it. That's my one regret that I didn't push it last spring. Really, I mean, Dr. Zelenko was was one of the pioneers in this, and it's a shame that we didn't have a much larger movement to push that because I think we could have prevented a lot of this. Now, folks, speaking of all this anxiety and natural ailments, one way to keep yourself healthy is by drinking wine. Believe it or not, not getting drunk, but one cup every evening. So many studies have shown is beneficial in many, many ways. But where do you go for the best tasting wine? Believe it or not, there is something called conservativewine.com from our friends at Bonner Private Wine Partnership. They grow wine down in Argentina in the Andes at 9,000 feet pristine 90-point wine, Um, but folks, the prices are going to be going up because there is scarcity. Why is there scarcity? Because down in Argentina, they have their own radical mobs like BLM that are running amok, um, and they've had some of their uh, plantations, some of their facilities as well that have been destroyed, but you guys could get their latest shipments at conservativewine.com. Um, whether you like drinking wine plain or with barbecue like I do, it has incredible notes of blackberry, dark cherry, leather, and smoke um, that make it perfect for that sizzling steak you take off the grill. Today, the guys over at conservativewine.com are offering you guys in the audience 50% off shipping and the price only for you, conservativewine.com. So folks, what I wanted to talk about today also with this other study, terrific, terrific study put out by, again, these are researchers at uh, Yale, Baylor, um, researchers in Toronto. You know, it's funny. It's not like you have to find these right-wing things to get the truth. From day one, every aspect of what the the political class has been putting out has been debunked by well-written papers put out by, you know, mainstream institutions, respected institutions, even with all the censorship. So there's another study. It's um, You could access it in Science Direct. The title is Early Multidrug Treatment of SARS-CoV-2 Infection and Reduced Mortality Among Nursing Home Patients. So there was this notion, oh my God, you're in a nursing home. You are very vulnerable to this. We just have to lock you down, make you die of never seeing your family. Well, Daniel, you can't deny that the virus is a threat to them, right? But what should have been done from day one, every one of them should have had their vitamin D, zinc, and C levels taken. They should have immediately been given 10,000 IUs per day of vitamin D. And there were known cocktails of how to treat them. So first, before the study, I just want to say this. In so many of these places, they'll give them their daily value, which is 800 IUs, which is complete BS, especially if you're that stage of life, and then you lock them indoors that they literally never see the sunlight, and you know this virus works off of vitamin D deficiency, they should have been getting 10,000 IUs a day. It would have saved tons of people. But what they found here 
was truly unbelievable. They found hydroxychloroquine, but that was the base. Again, it's not just one thing. It was a multi-drug regimen with other things showed a greater than 60% reduction in mortality. This is really, I was wondering if anyone was going to do a study on this, but they found that um, hydroxychloroquine mixed with other anti-inflammatory, um, anti-infectives, um, certain steroids, anti-thrombotic, and uh, anti-blood clotting agents resulted in a greater than 60% reduction in mortality. I, again, I want to make clear, we're not talking about 60% of the general public. We're talking about 60% of the most vulnerable people to die from this virus. So you can imagine with the people that really got a rough go at it and some of them died, you know, let's say in their 50s, 60s, 70s, um, outside of nursing homes, you can imagine it would have been much more. Going forward, we conclude that early empiric treatment for the elderly with COVID-19 in the nursing home setting has a reasonable probability of success and acceptable safety. And this is the thing. The virus is likely going to be endemic. Not at pandemic levels, but it will be around. And they are selling people this false sense of security with this phony fake vaccine. 15 months later, they refuse to talk about this. And I will tell you, this is likely the biggest scandal of COVID and the biggest scandal in history. I, I even talked to conservative friends, and I mentioned ivermectin. I was like, hey, did you see what came out? You know what they did with ivermectin? They're like, what's ivermectin? They never heard of it. I can't blame them. Unless you're following shows like this, you wouldn't have heard of it. The issue is timing of therapeutics, and we argue that Early treatment before hospitalization is the right time and can potentially save lives, especially among our higher-risk elderly population. And that's the thing. It's all early treatment. Early outpatient ambulatory treatment, once initiated as soon as symptoms begin in high-risk positive persons, would significantly reduce hospitalizations and prevent deaths. So... Basically, they conclude four things. One, hospitalizations and deaths would be reduced with this multi-drug cocktail. Transmission would be reduced. Think about it. Because if you have all this stuff, like ivermectin has antiviral and anti-inflammatory um, qualities, but it stops viral reproduction. The cocktails with hydroxychloroquine poison the cells for the virus to enter. So it's like poisoning the pond right away. So what happens if you stop the viral replication? Well, you save that patient from potential uh, you know, problems, but you also truncate the period of time for which they're transmissible. So you stop transmission. It's funny. Like, if you I, I don't believe in coercing anything, even something that there is solid science behind. It's it's someone's personal body. But if you buy onto the notion that you could shout emergency COVID and you have no right to bodily autonomy and I could shove anything on your body, well, if you're able to push vaccines and masks that really don't work and have terrible side effects, by a factor of a million, government should have pushed people to be on prophylactic regimens of some of this stuff. Because it would not have only helped them. If you don't get it, you can't spread it. They also found recovery following infection and treatment provides for natural exposure immunity that is broad-based, durable, and robust. See, that's the other thing. We're now finding all sorts of reinfections after the vaccine. 
the drug makers, that the vaccine makers themselves are saying, you're going to have to get booster shots. And the terrible stories of myocarditis and heart attacks and all sorts of things from young people, old people, especially young people. We all know now, not just the Cleveland Clinic study, but from hundreds of studies, natural immunity is as broad against SARS-CoV-2 as it is against any other virus we've ever known. So the key always was achieving natural immunity through the least pain. And that would have been accomplished by giving people all this. I, I will tell you, I know a lot of people that were old in their 70s that took hydroxychloroquine preemptively, especially if they thought they would be around people or whatever. I don't know a single one who, who got the virus. Forget about outcomes. They didn't even get it. And again, if you don't get it, you can't spread it. Truly, truly an amazing study here. I haven't delved through all of it, but again, if you want to go to Science Direct, early multi-drug treatment of SARS-CoV-2, Paul Alexander is the lead researcher. Um, yeah, I mean, this is where we are. Prestigious universities. But we've been lied to. We have been lied to all for nothing. Totally nothing. We are trying to prevent hospitalizations and save lives and strongly believe this approach can be impactful and merits strong consideration because they know between the lines, they're not saying it, that we're going we're gonna to need this on some level. Remember, we have all sorts of viruses, but we don't make a big deal out of it. This one, every detection of it in any part of the world, we're going to make a big deal out of it. And the phony vaccines are not going to take care of it. So it was a lie from day one that you could treat the virus by running away from it. It was a lie from day one that this virus doesn't work the way others did. It was a lie from day one that there was no way to treat this virus. And the latter one is the most heinous. The most heinous of all of them. You know, on that note, I just wanted to say, I, I had a long piece last week on India and comparing different states within India that used ivermectin and some didn't. What's amazing is that if you look at the data from Delhi, okay, very densely populated city, from May 12th to June 13th, literally the week they started using ivermectin, COVID beds went from 82% to 8%. COVID oxygen beds went from 85% to 8%. COVID ICU beds went from 99% to 16%. Like I said all along, it was bound to go down. It was going to peak like it always does, and it goes down significantly once you reach the peak because you reach natural immunity. But what we've seen in the states within India that used ivermectin is that it went down so much quicker. But the chilling question that that demands an answer to is this. What would have happened had they start, used ivermectin from day one? and didn't wait until the peak to start using it. What would have the results been? Folks, if I was able to understand and know this stuff from day one, I mean, you know me. I focused on illegal immigration, crime, a little bit foreign policy, economy. I am no expert on virology and immunology, okay? I never talked about it any time in my life before early last year. If I knew this, these guys, you better believe knew this too. They absolutely knew it. They're not that stupid. You have this stupid, like, regular 
PCPs, uh, internists that just drink out of the trough and they just do whatever government tells you. But the people at NIH absolutely knew this. They knew what they were doing in May of last year when they stopped all programs into therapeutics because of the vaccine. They had to focus only on the vaccine. And by the way, in Delhi, they have very low vaccination rates. Very low vaccination rates. And what have we gotten for all this? What have we gotten for this terrible phony vaccine? I mean, I only hope that God has mercy on his creation. And knowing that a billion or so people wind up getting this, that you just can't have all of the world destroyed. Alex Berenson reports... Another case of a 19-year-old Simone Scott. Okay? She has a greater likelihood of dying from the flu than from this. She was excited about her second dose of Moderna on May 1st. Now her mother, Valerie, is arranging her funeral. Again, this is in Alex's Twitter feed. He doesn't have an official byline anymore. He used to write for the New York Times. Simone, a first-year Northwestern University student, suffered a case of apparent myocarditis, induced heart failure on Sunday, May 16th. That's just two weeks later. Despite ex- extraordinary measures to save her, including a heart transplant, she died. Now her parents are struggling to understand what happened to Simone. I lost my only daughter, Kramer said Sunday night. I never thought I'd have to give up my daughter for the greater good of society. Doctors appear to have repeatedly missed signals as Simone's condition worsened in the two weeks following her second shot before she abruptly crashed. In mid-May, Israel was reporting high rates of cases of mRNA vaccine-related myocarditis in young people. And by the way, I I have heard that from people in Israel um, that work in the medical profession that they basically converted a lot of COVID units to vaccine units in the hospitals because they're getting so many people. Um, and basically, they, the physician has still not concluded or confirmed that she died because of the vaccine. So I don't even know if that case is, that case is likely not in the VAERS system, what Berenson is reporting. So he's finding cases that aren't even in the system, and they're so obvious they died from them. And think about it. You have so many of these people, you know, they're all told, yeah, you know, you might feel kind of, you know, a little bit sick for a week or two. And, and legitimately, even vaccines that are safer, you sometimes can feel sick from. But now how do you know before it's too late when you're already a week or two into heart failure? All for nothing. You know, we're talking about how even like nursing home patients, you could save them with early therapeutics. Someone like that doesn't even need the therapeutics, a 19-year-old. There's nothing. I just want you to understand that a society, a government, a media, an academia, a medical establishment that is willing to propagate something like this and continue it to this hour knowing it does that when CDC is already saying they're going to have an emergency meeting on this. Just know that they are lying to us on every other public policy. And yes, they are willing to have people die to promote their agenda. This is why we cannot live in a country with people like this. America is not large enough for an ideology like this to coexist alongside normal people. 
This is why we're going to need our red state, our red county sanctuary movement to break away as much as we can. And again, we're going to be talking a little bit more about that in the coming days. Now, one of the things we absolutely need to continue with is the pursuit of lawsuits. There is some good news. I always say, you know, as much as we failed a year ago to make this stop, you know, contrary to my best efforts, I will say we are gaining a lot of momentum. People feel the taste of freedom. I am feeling more optimistic. But what I'm scared about is we're just going to walk away from this. We cannot walk away from it. We need to crush COVID stand. We need to bury it, and we need to plow over the COVID fascist plantation with salt to prevent this from ever happening again. And there's a narrow window because a lot of these judges are going to try to say, oh, it's moot. They don't have a mass mandate anymore. But we need to pursue it now before it's moot completely, but while it's become unpopular. Because judges always go with the political will. If they see something's popular, they're not going to say it's unconstitutional. That's just the reality. We've seen that over and over again. There is no rule of law. It's the rule of political will, as my buddy Steve Dace always says. So we have this terrific ruling out of Gainesville, uh, Gainesville, Florida. Last week we talked about this Northern Kentucky ruling that was finally establishing that mass mandates are unconstitutional. In some ways, this ruling is even broader. And uh, again, it said how long it took. You see how long long this lawsuit took? It was last May. uh, This individual, um, his name was Green, and he had, I believe, a plant, like a plant nursery, a flower shop, and he sued that he didn't want to have his people wear masks. Remember, in Florida, you did have some counties that instituted a mask mandate, and Alachua, which is Gainesville, was probably the worst, that along with Miami. And he sued in district court. Um, this was in May, and you know the judge tossed it out like they, they did really with every lawsuit at the time. But finally, on Friday, it came out a ruling from the appeals court, the First District Court of Appeals, which really covers the uh, northern part of Florida. And this guy was Judge Tannenbaum, who, by the way, was appointed by Ron DeSantis. He, well, one, of, one of the things a lot of people don't realize is he really did a number on the appeals court and the Supreme Court there. He appointed a lot of really good guys. So um, he was actually on our show when he was running for governor in the primary. And he really he saw that play down the field. He was very into that. And I think he did a good job on that. So, um, you know, this is part of his legacy. We got this ruling that he ruled that you have to assume the entire mask mandate is presumptively unconstitutional. Meaning he wasn't ruling on it and going through all the data, but he said that the lower court made a mistake and he remanded it back because he said, wait a minute, this is a fundamental right Therefore, it's presumptively unconstitutional. It's subjected, as we always noted, to strict scrutiny. And therefore, you it, the onus is on the government to prove that masks work, that they're the least, least restrictive means of achieving a vital state interest like we do with every other right. This opinion had everything we were ever looking for. 
Um, he ruled off of the state Supreme Court precedent. He said, based on what the Supreme Court has told us about the scope of Article 1, Section 23, this is the state's constitution, um, Green, this is the plaintiff, reasonably could expect autonomy over his body, including his face, which means that he was correct to claim an entitlement to be let alone and free from intrusion by Alachua County's commission chairman. The mask mandate then implicated the right of privacy, According to Gainesville Woman Care, that's a state case precedent, the mask mandate was presumptively unconstitutional as a result. And what was very important about this ruling is that he invade against the premise made by the defendants that, oh, it's moot, right? Because uh, the governor prevented localities from doing it, so there is no mask mandate, so well, what are you complaining about? And I love the way he says this. Because of the nature of the various emergency orders that we have seen and the country's continued commitment to the public mask wearing, we are not convinced that this is the last that we will see of the issue. We conclude, then, that this case fits within the exception to the mootness doctrine, which is for controversies that are capable of repetition yet evading review. In other words, his whole point is, we can't sit and play this game. Oh my God, it's an emergency. Everyone's dying. You can't touch it. And then they keep it forever. And then it finally becomes um, like unpopular. People sue it. And then they take it off. Oh, the judge, it's moot. It's moot. And then they bring it back under some other emergency and everyone's scared and people are scared to have a lawsuit and rinse and repeat. It's kind of like what we see with election law. We talked about this during November, December with the contesting of the election where we've had this all the time where they have crazy things they do. You know, the the Department of whatever state, the election commission will just violate state election law. Anyone who wants could essentially vote on the internet. I don't know, whatever. Drop boxes, this and that. And then... We bring a lawsuit and they're like, well, it's not ripe. It's actually the opposite of mootness, but it's the same principle, right? So mootness is that the grievance already passed. Ripeness is it's not yet ripe. You know, it didn't yet happen. Well, you know, we, we, we don't see a problem yet. And we're like, well, what do you mean? There's only a problem after the election. And then guess what? <laughs> Comes after the election. Remember what all the courts said. It is moot. The election is over. Well, what about next election? Well, it's not ripe yet. <laughs> That's the game they play. And I'm so glad this judge saw this play down the field. He called them yokes upon the people, fiats, dictas, and he noted again very presciently it would behoove the trial court also to consider that while Article 1, Section 23 was not intended to provide an absolute guarantee against all government intrusion into private life of an individual, even in a pandemic, the Constitution cannot be put away and forgotten. And he gives a warning from William Pitt the Younger, necessity is the plea for every infringement of human freedom. So this is truly, truly a terrific ruling. He noted... That once this is a fundamental right, a plaintiff does not bear a threshold evidentiary burden to establish that a law intrudes on his privacy right and have it subjected to strict scrutiny if it is evident on the face of the law that it implicates this right. 
Another thing I like about what he noted is that, um, and this is really going to reverberate, I think, with vaccine lawsuits as well. So he talked about the harms, you know, why it's not moot. He says they could bring it back at any time. It's still very much a pressure. He noted another consequence was being subjected to whispering informants, impelled by county design publicity like the following proposed signage, and he posted the sign in his opinion, encouraging citizens to inform on their disobedient neighbors. The threat of government-sponsored shaming was not an idle one. The chairman who issued the original mask mandate stated publicly that masks are the only outwardly visible signal that you are contributing to the solution. And that's how he established a cause of action. And I think what's so important is we're going to see we're seeing this with the vaccines as well, if they're not downright mandating it. And this is part of the point that we're seeing with this whole argument of, oh, it's, it's a private entity. Right. So, again, this is obviously a lawsuit against the county commission um, induced mask mandate. But, you know, in the private businesses, they mandate masks or they mandate vaccines or they say you have to have a mask if you don't have a vaccine. It's not private. When the government censored, lied, and cajoled it, and they only got this off the ground in the economy and businesses and culture through an unconstitutional violation, don't tell me it's private. The government created this whispering campaign, this shame. This is the whole way that the Civil Rights Act was deemed constitutional. Because, yeah, we all agree, ideally, from the beginning, a business, if they want, could be hateful, rude, say I'm not going to serve someone who's black or this or whatever. But the, the way it was justified, at least in the short term, until we would equal things out, which we certainly have, and now the discrimination is against whites. But you know, you had for entire periods of history where blacks were regarded as less than human, as property. And the government sponsored that. The government sponsored a culture where blacks are like inferior. So the, you can't just say, oh, well, it's, it's private businesses. They, they have the right to serve someone or not serve someone or to hire or to not hire because it was impossible for them to have a fair shake. And again, now it's gone back the other way. But that's how intellectually I always supported, at least temporarily, putting limitations on a private sector. And I think... People that don't have the mask or vaccine are, are like what the blacks were in, in the 1950s and 60s in the South. You can't tell me, oh, you know, they have equal opportunity. Like, look, you know, let open a business that, that doesn't do it if you don't like it. They're working in concert with government. It's even stronger because here they're literally still working with them. So it's so important, folks, that we keep up the pressure. Sometimes we think we won 80%. Okay, it's over with. No, go after the extra 20. Now's the time to do it. It's so much easier politically, legally. And again, the judge is, is saying exactly what I've been saying. They're going to do this forever. They're going to do this for the flu. We always have other things circulating. I mean, think of the last 20 years. And just the first sign of it. They'll call it a scary name. They'll have a few people looking like their eyes bulged out and they spontaneously combusted and scare people. It's not going to be hard to do that again. And people right away will be trained. Oh my, now we have to start wearing masks. We got to enshrine this in state constitutions. Again, it's part of my never again legislation. If you Google my name, 
and Never Again Legislation on COVID Fascism. You'll see the article I wrote and my outline I have for that. We're going to be working with our Liberty Strike Force teams to have a resolution like this in every state legislature, in every county that we can get. We need it. We need it badly. Now, by the way, one other thing on that. You might be wondering, there's bad news. There was a federal judge in Texas, uh, Lynn Hughes, who, and it was a Reagan appointee, the Southern District of Texas, ruled that it's totally okay for the Houston hospital systems to require, if you remember, over 100 people were fired for not being vaccinated. It's actually good news that he had his obnoxious opinion. First of all, Lynn Hughes has the highest, or or the lowest affirmation rate of any trial judge. So there's something called an affirmation rate. How many trial judges, what percentage of their rulings were affirmed as opposed to being overruled and reversed by the appellate court? He is the lowest rate in Texas. I think it may be in the entire Fifth Circuit. Fifth Circuit is a pretty good circuit. That's a good place to get this lawsuit. We need to get this to the Supreme Court anyway, so I'm glad this is the quickest way to do it. And why not do it through a good circuit? So I'm glad he did that. So this guy also, Lynn Hughes, has a history of being personally rebuked by the Fifth Circuit for not looking at facts, being political. He actually one time said he criticized female a female prosecutor, said, like, I, I wish the old days where we just had men in suits, you know, where women weren't, weren't doing this anyway. I mean, I'm not much of a feminist guy. I'm pretty old-fashioned myself. But, dude, like, come on. So this is a really bad dude. So don't panic from seeing the headlines about this ruling. He's a total clown. Actually, it, 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 this is the best judge to have rule this way because the Fifth Circuit has a whole history with him, and they're going to overturn him. So this, I, I, I believe, will get a Fifth Circuit ruling pretty quickly because obviously um, this is, you know, they're fired from their jobs. This, this needs immediate redress. The urgency of this issue, I, I think we have a very good chance is a robust effort behind this lawsuit. So, you know, again, I, I just want to say as much as I could be negative, and there's a lot to be negative about, I will say that relative to where we were just six to eight weeks ago, even four weeks ago, it, it is shocking. We've had a turnaround um, politically, legally. The point is, don't walk away from it. Now is when we got to push it hard Push it in the special sessions. Push it in the regular sessions. Push it with the county officials. Whatever you think they're doing to you know, tear down the wall of COVID fascism, it's not enough. Anything more than 0.0001% of COVID fascism is too much. Is immoral, illogical, unscientific, now that we have all this information, and unconstitutional. I don't care. Private, public, it's all one thing at this point. So we need to go full bore, plow the earth, and salt it so this can never, ever happen again. Now, folks, just in the remaining time here, I did want to really delve into my punchline of where this needs to head, the story of two Nevada counties, Go Constitutional Alex Newman of Epic Times came out over the weekend, Elected officials, commissioners, in Elk County and Lander County, Nevada, they passed a constitutional sanctuary resolution. And the important thing here is it's not just a matter of, um, you know, Second Amendment. That we have a lot of them. But it's got to be more than Second Amendment. 
And they say the people of these United States have a right to be free, independent, and these rights are derived from the law of nature. Nature is God. Um, and they basically commit to disallowing any orders that are go against the First Amendment, Fifth Amendment. Um, obviously, it does include firearm stuff there. And... Um, you know, all sorts of stuff, it totally makes it unconstitutional. And I think that is where we need to go with the constitutional sanctuary movement that this just doesn't happen there. We could hold hearings on data and things later on, but we don't do COVID fascism here, just like we don't do gun control here. Part of the never again movement. Never again movement. And by the way, I just forgot to mention one other interesting thing about Florida. We're talking about a lot of things. There's the state lawsuit that that they won on Lachua County. There's a federal complaint that it is heading to court in the Middle District of Florida. There was another lawsuit that the governor sued over the cruise industry. So if you remember, CDC is requiring the cruise industry to require vaccination for, you know, setting sail on one of their cruises. So the governor um and they had all sorts of regulations. And <clears throat> the governor sued in the middle district of Florida. It's also Orlando, or maybe this one is in Tampa, but whatever. And what's interesting is I wasn't so into this lawsuit because <clears throat> I didn't care about the cruises so much. Like, whatever, that's kind of small potatoes. But what's interesting is that the judge during the oral arguments, I'm going to delve into this maybe a little bit more later this week, but there might be an opinion coming very soon. He seemed to be going very broad, meaning that the government has no data that anything they're doing works. And I'm not promising you this, but that might be the opinion that collapses the airplane mandate on masks, not just the vaccination, but the mask stuff as well. Um, based on what he seemed to be arguing, you never know what he rules and how he rules that way. But but again, we're headed that way very quickly so there is what to look up for. But again, sometimes it's the time when things are looking up that we need to be the most frantic, the most emphatic, because you get very few opportunities when you're against the system, when you're on our side. And when God gives you those opportunities, boy, oh boy, do you have to utilize them to, the, to its fullest. Again, I didn't get to some of the other stories today. Um, insane crime stories. I have an article out today on juvenile murder, which is increasingly crazy because we don't lock up the juvenile carjackers. Um, so we'll have more on that later this week. We'll also have a special show coming up on Islamic immigration, Arab immigration, large numbers to the United States, and the uncovered story of attacks on Jews and anti-Semitism um, since the flare-up in Gaza and things like that, where America is now becoming Europe. Um, where you have just these roving bands of Islamists attacking Jews because we had such compassionate immigration policies. Let me know what you want to be covered, what you feel needs to be focused upon, not just in terms of information, but for guidance on where we go. Because here we are all about action. We are skating to where the puck goes, not to where it's been. Till tomorrow, God bless you all, and thank you for listening.